This is the Good Judge Men Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another session of the Good Judgment Podcast. I am Wade Paget, And I'm Tane Kell, and together we will be your hosts. The Good Judgment Podcast is designed for judges, lawyers, and others who are interested in judges and the law and procedure that occurs in a courtroom. Now, our focus is on Georgia law and Georgia judges. We normally address issues dealing with substantive law and procedure, but occasionally we have some other topics that we think might be of interest for judges to consider. For those who have been listening to our podcast, we want to thank you and hope that you'll tell somebody else. And don't forget, folks, if you want to contact us, you can send us an email to goodjudgepod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on the uh, web at goodjudgepod.com. Hey, folks, welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. This is Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And we are going to continue our series on evidence essentials. You may recall we've recorded some with our... What was it? Friend of podcast, F-O-P-C yeah. or something? <laughs> the Garen Mueller. Uh, unfortunately, Garen suffered a death in the family and he couldn't make it today. So we are going to take one of these on, just just the, the two dummies sitting here, and hopefully get you through a topic. You want to tell everybody what we're going to talk about? Yeah, sure. We're going to talk about some changes that have been in, uh, made to the law um, dealing with the rape shield statute and uh, some some recent updates that everybody's going to need to know about. Really recent. This is Rule 412 for those of you who are rule number people. So when the evidence code was rewritten, effective 2013, there were several groups that had a pretty effective lobby that were engaged in that conversation. And one of the most formidable or one of the most uh, well heard were that of the prosecutors. The prosecutors talked about rape shield and when 412 was originally issued, it looked nothing like FRE 412. It made made a single point. Evidence that you and I might call prior sexual behavior or other sexual activity of an alleged rape victim could only be used if the issue was consent the issue being raised by the defendant was consent of the sexual contact. That's right. So we significantly deviated from the federal rules of evidence with respect to that and only included essentially that one exception. So April 18th, 2019, rule FRE, or excuse me, the rule 412 has been rewritten. It is not identical to FRE 412, federal rule of evidence 412, but it's really, really, really close. Now, we do not have all the answers to what all this means, but we do know that it was made in response to a particular case that came out, what the holding was in that case, and within the same term of the legislature, the legislature rewrote the statute. So there's an obvious impetus, an an obvious catalyst for that to have happened. So the new rule applies to most sex offenses. Specifically, if you want to hear the list, y'all know how effective reading statutes is on a <laughs> podcast, but the it, they would apply to rape, ag assault with intent to rape, sodomy, aggravated sodomy, statutory rape and incest, child molestation, aggravated child molestation, human trafficking, pimping, pandering, and keeping a place of prostitution, sexual battery, aggravated sexual battery. So in any of those kind of cases, it's not just rape, any of those kind of cases, this, this rule applies. This, the past sexual behavior of the complaining witness is not admissible, either as direct or cross or anyway, for any of those types of cases. The past, the past sexual behavior of, complaining, of the complaining witness is not admissible, except 
and there's only a very few circumstances where the exception would apply. Do you want to handle that? Yeah, that's right. Um, it would apply where evidence of specific instances of the victim complaining uh, wit- victim or complaining witnesses' sexual behavior is offered to prove that someone other than the defendant was the source of the semen or the injury or the other physical evidence. It would also be uh, admissible uh, evidence of a specific instance of the victims or complaining witnesses' sexual behavior with respect to the defendant if it supports an inference that the accused could have reasonably believed that the complaining witness consented to the conduct complained of in the prosecution. So that's kind of the old rule of, of consent there. And then finally, that evidence could be admissible with respect to the defendant or another person if offered by the prosecutor. So the prosecutors can bring in some of this for a particular reason. And then finally, evidence whose exclusion would violate the defendant's constitutional rights. So tell them what that means, Wade. <laughs> Tane and I talked about this, and, and that's about as broad as one could be. So there are all sorts of circumstances where a the defendant has a constitutional right to confront his accuser, the constitutional right to have an effective cross-examination. The con- I mean, there's all kind of reasons why that might you might try to find yourself under that umbrella of if it required it to preserve a constitutional right of the defendant. Now let's stop for a moment. We've talked about the new rule. We know that it's going to be hard to figure out. We're not offering all the explanations, but we know it's changed. So before we get into the procedural requirements that have to be met to have past sexual behavior of the complaining witness to be admissible, understand that the prior version of 412 said almost with a period the only circumstance under which a victim's prior sexual behavior could come in is if there was a claim of consent by the defendant, right? Yes. Tell them about White. Well, in the White case, that case said essentially evidence of a complaining witness's past sexual behavior is only admissible under the Rape Shield statute if that evidence is relevant to the issue of consent. That's That was the conclusion of the case. But in response to the holding of the White case – the legislature during that same legislative term. So this case came out in 2019 while the legislature was still in session. During that session, the prosecutors uh, went in and, and with some legislators and decided that the statute needed to be uh, re-examined, and they put some new provisions in that. Right, Wade? That's right, and, and, and it much more closely tracks the federal rule on this. So if you see some 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 11th circuit cases that you think apply to your situation you can you can consult that and now use that before it was useless because our fre our, our rule 412 looked nothing like fre 412 right now it looks strikingly similar and i think that was intentional because i think there is a realization that while we do not want the victim's sexual past sexual behavior to come in as a regular rule there are some circumstances where it might be relevant. So I'll tell you what happened to me. We were trying a sexual contact case, and during the trial, the prosecutor argued, Judge, the only reason that the defendant's prior sexual behavior can come into evidence is if there's an allegation of consent. And this defendant is alleging he wasn't there. Therefore, it can't come in under any circumstance. I said, well, that makes sense. Tell me what the past sexual behavior you're discussing is. She said, the prosecutor said, 
the victim indicated she was a virgin before this. And that is evidence of her past sexual behavior. And so that was one of those things. All right, is that past sexual behavior? No, that's a claim. That's a statement. But it goes to past sexual behavior. But what, what the prosecutor did was essentially beat me over the head with white that said the only time that can come in is if there was a claim of consent. No claim of consent doesn't come in. So I was sort of struggling with that, and I'm like, God, that doesn't seem like 412 that I remembered from Paul Millich and, and, and Georgia State uh, University College of Law. And so we went back and we looked. Or in my case, Ron Carlson and the University of Georgia College of Law. Which is a huge sponsor of the Good Judgment podcast. <laughs> um, because they let really nice people help us record this at their facilities in Athens. Anyway, yeah, back yeah, to the point. Dogs. I knew that didn't sound right. They didn't feel right. And so I looked it up, and lo and behold, the statute had changed. I had to get out a pocket part. And for those of you who are younger, you might not know what a pocket part is to a book. A book. (laughs) What's a book, Wade? I know, right? So I had to go get it out, and I realized, oh, my gosh, they had changed the statute. Because it's a 2019 case being tried in 2019, you think you can probably rely upon the 2019 uh, decision. And lo and behold, they had changed it. There was another case called Burns that was decided in June of 2019 by the Georgia Supreme Court. and After adri- the statute changed. After the statute changed, and it addressed whether a defendant has the right to impeach a victim of a sex crime with evidence that the victim in the case had prior- previously made a false allegation against another person in a whole other incident. Now, I'll tell you, there were a bunch of cases that said that f- prior false allegations were just per se admissible, always. The court held that there is no constitutional right to impeach a witness with the use of extrinsic evidence of a prior false allegation. So it seems like Burns is still applicable, that 412 changing didn't change Burns. It was decided enough time after Burns that I am satisfied that the it didn't just get crossed in the mail, so to speak, that, that the appellate courts knew the statute had changed and decide the case based upon the decision in, or I guess the change in the statute. But if this is a constitutional right exception, if the defendant says I have a constitutional right to confront with a prior false allegation for some reason, that's going to fail. Burns is good law, and it was decided after the change in the statute. So that it can't be that broad, but we honestly, Tane and I don't know how broad it is. Right. I, in further cases, we'll, we'll define what those parameters are, and unfortunately, you'll, you judges out there will hear those cases. And, and we will all learn together, That's sometime right. at your, sometimes at your expense, sometimes proving how brilliant you were That's right. that, that, of, of how it's going to play out. Tane, real quickly, there's a couple of procedural requirements. If you're going to get into any 412, you've got to file something within, I think, three days before trial. That's right. Um, looking at subsection C of Rule 412, um, the procedure for uh, introducing evidence is just described in that. And uh, it says, if a party intends to offer evidence under Code Section B, the party must first file a motion that specifically describes the evidence and states the purpose for which it is to be offered and must do so at least three days before trial unless the court for good cause sets a different date. And then also, before admitting that evidence um, 
under that section, the court shall, and this is a, a requirement, conduct an in-camera hearing, and it specifically says in-camera, um, to examine the merits of the motion. Now, let me ask you this. When you conduct in-camera hearings, I don't have a lot of in-camera hearings. My understanding is everybody's there, the public is not. That's my understanding of what that means as well, and that it is a hearing on the record. It's just held outside the public. Because there are sometimes that we ha- we hear things in chambers or whatever. That's really different. I mean, the defendant, I think, I think you, you have to do it in a someplace that everybody can be present, be taken down, whether it's a courtroom or wherever else you want to have it. That's up to you. But it just can't not in the not in front of the public i think from a from a constitutional standpoint yes the defendant and the parties would all have a a constitutional right to be there and i'm not going to do it without making a record not going to happen here either folks as a conclusion i know this is a short in, in, in explanation or discussion of 412 but quite frankly we don't have a lot to tell you We just know the law changed, and we know some of you look at a 2019 appellate case like I did and said, well, that must be the law, and let's carry on and do the analysis. It's fresh law. It's fresh law. That's right. And so you would say, well, that's the law, so it was decided this year, so clearly that's the law. Well, until the legislature changes the statute during the same session. So what I would guess I'm telling you is this. When you get a rape shield case, Make sure it just a bell goes off in your head that the statute changed so that the parties can come and argue that to you with you having the freshest law on hand. Folks, this is Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. Like what you're hearing? Let us know. Your ratings and reviews go a long way for us, and we appreciate your continued support of this podcast. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This project was the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Jim Henneberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law. Without them, we really could not do this. And thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped to edit some of our stupidity and awkwardness. Hey, but nobody can get it all. That's a good point. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council Superior Court judges who allowed us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court judges across Georgia. And thanks to our NGAO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else with an acronym or alphabet name. Or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com if you have any praise. And contact someone else with any of your complaints. <laughs> but seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send those comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. And visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcast. Once again, I am Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And thanks for listening. Tane, I guess it's time to bang the gavel on this one. Any last thoughts before we wrap this session up? No, let's just turn it over to the studio audience. And the crowd goes wild. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.